Thank you for joining us here at Dominion Church. We're so glad you're tuning in. If it's on Facebook, go ahead and like and share this so that others can be blessed as a result. Maybe you're watching on our YouTube channel at Dominion Church SC. Uh, And if so, go ahead and turn on the notifications for that so that you can get notified as soon as a new video comes on. Uh, And then maybe you're listening on our podcast experience. Either way, we're so grateful that you're joining us. Do me a favor. We'd love for you to come and be a part of one of our corporate gatherings. Uh, We meet at 1.30 right now on Sundays at the Maravan Center, and our information can be found on our Facebook page on our website at dominionchurch.net. So uh, we'd love to see you. Come be a part of what we're doing. There's room to grow. There's room for you here, Uh, and we would just love to serve you, to bless you, to pray for you, to stand with you as a local faith community. We'd love to have that privilege. Uh, I, I have something to share just a few things uh, on my heart today along the same lines of the series that we've been in now. Uh, the, the last three sessions that I've done here at Dominion have been called The Warshack God. And so this will actually be part four of that focus. And then Dan has been bringing some amazing words. I pray that you're going and watching those, listening to them. Uh, his message on the God of reconciliation just a couple weeks ago. I, I promise you, you need to listen to it. It's one of the great missing components. It really is. The church has misunderstood what the work of reconciliation is. And since we don't know what the work of reconciliation is, we don't even know what it means to be those who now, we're actually now committed to the work of reconciliation. Could you imagine someone tells you, hey, you're expected to do this. You're like, do what? Well, do that. Well, it's this work. I don't even know what it is. (laughs) And so the Lord has given us the ministry of reconciliation and we don't understand it. So I'd encourage you to go listen to it. Uh, So here in in session four, the Warshak God, I just want to remind you of that. We've got that verse out of Psalm 50, Psalm 50, verse 21. And just that reminder, oftentimes we'd see David in the Psalms, we'd see him bearing his soul. That doesn't mean he was hearing from God, though. And I think that's a lesson for all of us, that no matter what, just go ahead and sing. Even if the song is you're brokenhearted, the song is you're lacking in faith, the song is you're frustrated... God wants to hear the song regardless, but it also gives the Lord this opportunity to begin to interject his heart, and we see that time and time again in the Psalms. So Psalm 50, you start reading, there's around verses 16 or 17, the Lord begins to speak, and what he says is very interesting, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, okay, you guys, you you're given to gossip, you're given to slander, you'll, you'll betray your own brother, uh, you're given over to adultery, this whole list of things. And then right at verse 21, he says, and I remained silent while you did these things, and you thought I was exactly like you. You thought I was exactly like you. And so the assumption was, well, God didn't say anything, so I guess God's okay with it right? And so that's what we've been dealing with, the Warshak God, the God who looks like us. And we use our experiences, our disappointments and our expectations, our hopes and, you know, our losses. And we project them onto this image and we create a God that looks like us. And then, you know, I've said it multiple times in our previous sessions, isn't it interesting? Your enemies become God's enemies. Your politics become God's politics, Your favorite translation of the Bible becomes his favorite translation, right? Your favorite denomination becomes his favorite. Isn't that interesting how that works? God starts looking more and more like us. But Scripture tells us that Jesus is the exact image and the perfect representation of the Father. 
So that's where we have to go to get our information. Uh, and the church has missed that for a very long time. But I'm, I'm grateful and I'm encouraged now, more than I have been in a long time, the church is starting to ask those questions. Okay, who is God that looks like Jesus? And, and especially this emerging generation, that's like their focal point. Don't talk to me about unconditional love and agape and grace and mercy on, out of one side of your mouth and the other side of your mouth is God is perfectly okay with genocide. He's perfectly okay with, with destroying people. It, it, you can't have it both ways because those two streams are very exclusive. Okay, what do I mean? A God who's unconditional love is not a God who's going to destroy. Okay, and, and again, I know, I know we've got to dig in that. And that's what we've been doing. We're going to do that some more in this session. So I want to talk a little bit about the heavenly missionary today. The heavenly missionary. God is a heavenly missionary. And uh, there are stories that we could all share, you know, especially if you've done any mission work, that where you could kind of connect to this mentality some. But there's, there's a great story, profound story, uh, in the book Cross Vision by Greg Boyd. And he shares about this couple that uh, was called to this remote village. I'm just giving you the cliff notes of this story. This remote village, and uh, in this village, part of what was ingrained in their cultural practice generationally was, was female circumcision, which I'm not going into details, but it, it's atrocious, it's, it's abuse, it's, it's not good. And so when they get there, they realize this is so ingrained that even though we completely disagree with it, if we go after that issue, they will not receive us. And if they don't receive us, then we can't do the work that God has put in our hearts to do. So if you can imagine this couple, for three years, they continue to endure this. They watch this happen. And so they try to figure out, okay, how can we at the very least make it better? And so they introduce medication to the tribe that helps. They introduce better cutting tools to, to make it at least easier. And if, if we're not careful, it looks like they are supportive of the practice. You get what I'm saying? They're supportive of it. They're almost like, well, we'll make it easier. That almost, well, it sounds like you guys are pro this. But then around the three-year market, it's amazing the way the story plays out. The tribe begins to connect the dots. Hey, the gospel you've been preaching and you've been demonstrating, it looks like doing this is not a good thing. And then they have their opening. Yes, you're, yes, you're right. This is not, this breaks the heart of God. This is not right for these beautiful young ladies that, that are God's children. And the tribe stops doing it. But for three years, those missionaries had to suffer what they were doing because they were working with them where they were in the moment to move them along in their understanding of the heart and nature of God. So now, imagine God is a heavenly missionary. And when He comes to humanity, that's what He's doing. He's bearing our sin, working with us where we are. He has ideals in His heart. But have you noticed, and, and it's not difficult, you open up your Bible and you see where God has ideals and then he, he allows concessions time and time and time again. Why? It's not because he's just changing his mind. It's because he's working with us where we are. And I know sometimes that can be really hard for us to grasp, but that is the character and nature of God on display. So again, Psalm 50, 21, you thought I was exactly like you, right? And, and, and 
This is kind of the way Israel interpreted the silence of God, the same way that tribe interpreted the silence of this couple, trying to, to work with them where they were. And so what does God do time and again? You, you go and you read the Old Testament, and Israel, rebellious, hard-headed, breaks the heart of God over and over and over again. And so can you imagine God now? He's, as a missionary, working with this rebellious nation, barbaric. I mean, the Israelites, are, they're barbaric, especially by today's standards, barbaric, uh, because of his love for them. That's what is moving him along. And so in the silence, we cannot, I think one point I want to make sure we take away from what I'm sharing today. When God is silent, the, the last assumption you should make is that he's approving of what you're doing. Right? Well, I hadn't heard God say anything. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, I was raised in an environment, don't move until you hear God say something, right? And so I think there's balance there, right? But don't just assume, well, you know, I'm doing my own thing, I'm, I'm just, I'm, and God's not saying anything, well, then he must be okay with it. Well, all right, I would just encourage you to get before the Lord and see, you know, get before the Lord and ask. And so, um, I'll give us some examples, I think, to help us. That'll probably be more helpful. Um, there, there are several that we could go after. Um, like one would be marriage. We, we could go after God's ideal for marriage. You guys know what God's ideal is? You can see it basically at the beginning. One man, one woman become one flesh, right? You turn over a couple pages, and all of a sudden the kings have multiple wives. Another page and concubines, and then there's moments where it even looks like God is like okay with it, like completely okay with it. Like in 2 Samuel 2, uh, 12, verse 8, he's talking to David, and he says, I also gave you your master's house and put your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and uh, if that had not been enough, I would have given you more. So it looks like God is like, yeah, you know, I've got... I'd really wish you did it this way, but that's okay. No, it's actually God working in this very fallen state that David was in. He's like, you know what? For some reason, this is your thing. I don't know why. I'm going to work with you where, where, where we are in this journey. You know, um, it's also interesting. I remember the first time I shared this at a message outside of Dominion where Moses has this decree, and his decree was, hey, when you go and you conquer an invading army, tithe the virgins to the priesthood. That goes over like a lead balloon. It really does. And that promise has been in your Bible your whole life. You know why it goes over like a lead balloon? Because we're like, wait, is that who God is? Like, seriously? Could you imagine getting up and preaching a message like that at a church today? The pastor gets up, hey, real quick, tithe the virgins to the priesthood. We would say, no, church is over. We'd run that guy out on a rail. He'd be on every major news station before the day could end, right? What in the world? But now you look at the cultural context of that day. That actually was an elevation for these young ladies. Well, we don't understand that culturally because their destiny was far worse off if they were not given to the priest, because when they came to the priest, they would tend to the needs of the tabernacle. They were fed and provided for their whole lives. It actually dignified their existence after being conquered. 
Now, 2,000 years removed, and this is another testimony to how good God is. Now, when we think of that, we think that's horrific because God knows how to move us along. Isn't that something? But back then, that was an elevated position to take. Other neighboring armies would not do that. So God's working with Israel. He wants to show the world what his heart and nature looks like, but he has to start somewhere. And he's starting with Israel because all he can use is broken people. So broken Israel, they qualify. And so it looks like God as a heavenly missionary, it, it looks like he's condoning or guilty of condone of he appears guilty of condoning the sin of polygamy, but he's actually not. It's not his ideal. And you keep going along. I mean, he keeps bearing that burden of sin. He keeps bearing these images that look nothing like his character and nature. I mean, you get up to the life of Jesus, and he's like, not only is the ideal a man and a woman in one flesh, but I don't even want men and women to get divorced, but I'll allow it. Why? We don't, we don't, we don't keep asking the questions, why? Okay? Because in that day, culturally, men could just discard their wives, and when they did, guess who didn't lose their stature in society? The men didn't. The women lost everything. Right, boo, right? And so then he said, okay, so if you do get a divorce, there has to be a certificate of divorce. Why? To protect the women and children. See, we don't, we don't let all that play out. So what we do with a religious you know, veil over our face, oh, no divorce is allowed. And then we stick to that. And we cause women to stay in abusive relationships and abusive marriages because the word says you can't do it. Even though Jesus himself would make concessions, you know what? Because of them. My, my ideal would be that the married man and the married woman would have an amazing marriage and never even have to entertain this. But should they need to entertain it, I got to protect the weaker party in this too. I got to protect those that can't protect themselves. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Okay, another example, human kings. Human kings. Now, again, we're thinking of God, the heavenly missionary. What is God's ideal for kingship? Well, God wanted to be the only king. He wanted to be the only king that humans would submit to. And, and, and he had hoped that his chosen people would be the model for the rest of the world to see what worshiping God would look like. And so what does Israel do? Almost, well, pretty quick. Well, um, we refuse to obey. <laughs> we will not listen to your prophet. And they say, no, no, we want a king over us that we may also, hear this, that we can be like all the other nations. You see, one of Israel's biggest problems was they, they wanted to be like everybody else. What's problematic certainly is this. God is not like any other God. So those that worship the Lord, they're not like other people. Whether you want to be or not, it doesn't matter. Well, we want to be like all the other nations, and we want our king to judge us. We want our king to go out and fight our battles for us. And then in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, listen, obey what the people say to do. They have not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. So again, what's God's ideal? I want to be your king, but if you want other kings, knock yourself out. It's going to be rough, 
but I'm, I'm not going to override your free will. I, I'm not going to give you a lobotomy to do what I want you to do. Why? Because God elevates love above that kind of freedom, right? He's not going to control our behavior. You know, there are times, you know, like parents, we wish we could control our kids, but uh, most of the time we, we're not successful. I'm speaking from personal experience. <laughs> we, can, we can make suggestions. We can try to mold and shape, but ultimately, they're still their own individual people. Gabriel, I love you. He's up there waving his finger at me like I'm preaching to him. I don't know. Maybe he's like, Dad, go back and listen to your own message. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. So God decides to, to yield to his people's demands. And then the, the biblical narrative, which is interesting, that, that consistently it depicts God as approving or working through blessing Israel's kings despite the fact that they rejected him in anger. Do you see that? So God doesn't even hold a grudge about it. It, it, it's, it really is amazing. The more we dig into the depths of the character and nature of God, I don't want human kings. Okay, well, we want them, okay? And then he will use them and bless them and bless the people that chose them instead of him. Are, you, are, you, are we tracking? Is this making sense right now? Okay. None, and it doesn't mean for one moment that God actually wants it. He, I don't, this is not what I want. This is not the system that I want. But I'm, I, I love you guys, and we're going we're gonna to work together. We're going we're gonna to work to make this happen. It's pretty amazing to think about. So you've got the fate of nations resting on fickle kings. Let me use language that will maybe be more appropriate for us. Like now, we have the fate of nations in the hands of fickle politicians. And God's ideal is, hey, this whole political thing's nonsense, all of it. Your favorite and your least favorite, it's all nonsense, all of it. And they're, they're, most of the time, they're only going to make decisions that benefit them, and they are not thinking of you, period. Okay? Now, how do I know that God has no time for politics? You look at Jesus when he's, he's confronted with Pilate. That was Jesus' moment to show us his political platform. Remember? And Pilate says, okay, uh, are you the king of the Jews? Well, first of all, I didn't say that. You did, which I love Jesus, snarky as always. And then he, he assures Pilate, my kingdom is not like yours. If it were, my disciples, my followers would be in the streets fighting for me. Okay? That is the game of politics. It's the game of the sword. Now, our swords are a little more modern now. Sometimes it just looks like, you know, putting out a bad statement on Facebook now but it still stabs. Now swords are called cancel culture, whatever you want to call it. But the Lord is trying to say, that is not how the kingdom navigates. It doesn't even work that way, okay? But nevertheless, I will use your crazy people that you put in power, and we're still going to figure this out. Y'all crazy, but we're going to make it. I still love you, okay? <laughs> um. And then one, one more, which is kind of one of my pet peeves, you guys know it, is animal sacrifice. Um, so here's just three examples, and there are many, many examples. We, we talked about marriage for a minute. We talked about earthly kings, and then animal sacrifices. Never, I love this, uh, this is a quote from Jeff Turner in his book, Saints in the Arms of a Happy God. Never was God interested in blood, death, or violent appeasement. These sometimes savage images were but shadows of what Christ would accomplish through his death, 
when he destroyed the actual corrupting power of sin. We must never make the mistake of seeing God as one who is pleased with death and violence in the same manner as pagan gods, because we know that he, he never was. The idea that God is satisfied or satiated by sacrificial blood is clearly a heathen idea, and God himself time and again emphasizes his own disinterest in the ceremonial aspects of sacrifice. So can I give us just a few verses to, 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 to think about? Deuteronomy 32, verses 37 through 38. He will say, now where are their gods, the rock they took refuge in, the gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. So in that statement, God is separating himself from other gods. They eat sacrifices. They drink blood. Go to them. Don't come to me because I, I don't do that, is essentially what's being said. Psalm 50, verses 9 through 15. This is the Lord prophesying now, again, through David in, this, in Psalm 50, the same psalm we, we, we've been using for this series, the Warshak God. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine. I, I love that. Can we pause for a minute? Okay, Lord, I'm going to bring you this sacrifice of this bull. And if God just felt like it every time, first of all, that is my bull. So stop killing my stuff. It's mine. If you actually would talk to me, I would tell you I'd prefer for it to be alive and enjoy it that way. What is, what is going on with you people, right? Um, and then he goes on to say, the cattle on a thousand hills. And that's not actually just literalism. Uh, he owns the thousand and one hill too, right? He owns them all, okay? Uh, I know every bird in the mountains. I know all the insects in the fields. They're all mine. If I were hungry, listen to the Lord here. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world is mine and all that's in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thanks offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Now that sounds for a moment like a shift, like all of a sudden God's a little schizophrenic there. But actually he is laying up the context for that statement in verse 14. When he says sacrifice your thank offerings, what he's telling them is I know you're going to do it anyway, but I'm just trying to tell you I don't need it and I don't care about it. I don't want it. It's mine anyway. But you know what? Go ahead and do your thing. Go ahead and fulfill your vows. He, and he's clear on that. I'm not asking for this, but you have made your vows, so go ahead and do what you want to do. Go ahead and honor me, but don't, don't pin it on me. I'm not the one out there asking for this stuff. Isaiah 1.11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings. Actually, you guys are so good at this stuff, I'm up to my ears in burnt offerings. I've had enough of the burnt offerings. I've had enough of the rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Don't want it. Okay, Amos 5 takes it to like this next level. We're almost done here. I hope this hadn't bored you too much. Amos 5 verse 21 through 24. This is the Lord prophesying through Amos. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. 
Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what God wants. I want to see righteousness. I want to see justice. You guys want to fill the streets with blood. I just want to see justice and righteousness. I I don't want any of this stuff. Keep it to yourself. Hmm. Mark chapter 12, verses 32 through 34. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So again, the standard is love is better than all burnt offerings and all sacrifices. So there's an implication there to that statement, which I don't think we want to entertain. And it's simply this. You will feel the need to sacrifice if you don't have any love. Okay, God, I'm not sure. My love is shallow, so I'll bring some sacrifices to you. Maybe that'll help. Maybe that'll work. Okay. Can't get any help. It's okay. Uh, and, And then finally, Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice. I don't know how much we're playing to make it, right? or I would bring it to you. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That offering you will not despise. That's David, which again is interesting because David sacrificed all the time. But there are moments where God overrides David's song and he begins to interject his own will and nature. And what does he say there? Listen, hey, all right, Judah, come on, bro. Just, Just pause it. Yes, sir. You're good, man. Judah's on top of it today, man. I appreciate you. Uh, and so, so what does David say? No sacrifices, but this is the sacrifice, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And, and what, what's the layers of that statement? Relational intimacy. What pleases God? Relationship. It is so easy to replace relationship with all the stuff. Here's the sacrifice. And again, I know this is not even really our language because none of you brought a sacrifice in here today. But if we're not careful, we'll still use sacrificial language. Sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice of thanksgiving. Sacrifice of whatever. Oh, I got up this morning early because it's a sacrifice to the Lord. Why? Did he ask for it? Why do we feel the need to bring it? This sacrifice. He just wants a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He wants people that are relationally close to him that represent his character and nature well. And he's like, you know what? I'm so pleased with that. I don't need anything else. I promise you. And then finally, and then we're done. Jeremiah 7, verses 21 through 23. For me, you know, one of these days we probably need to do like a whole weekend on this because I just have questions. And that's Jeremiah 7, 21 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. So Paul's right there first. God is saying, take all your sacrifices and you eat it. You, want to, you go feast on all the stuff you want me to eat. You just take it and eat it. And then look at this, verse 22. I never spoke to your fathers or commanded them in the day I brought them out of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. I got to pause right there. I never spoke to your fathers concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. The first question I have is, then how did we build a complete and total sacrificial system if the Lord never spoke to them about it? 
Again, the Warshak God looks more, says more about us. It looks more like us than it looks about him. It look, I would say it looks like our desire to want sacrifice, our desire to want to, to shed blood, and then we project it onto God. Verse 23, this is what I commanded them. Okay, so Jeremiah says, the Lord is saying, never wanted sacrifice, never commanded it. Here's the command. Obey my voice. <laughs> Obey my voice. I will be your God. You will be my people. Walk in my ways that I have commanded you, that it may all be well with you. I remember growing up, my mom would pray for us every night. She'd come up right at our, our bedroom doorway and pray for us. And there were times we wouldn't even let her get away without it. Mom, get in here and pray. Quick, I can't go to sleep. Come pray. And, and, and there were times over and over again where she would remind us about the, the obedience. She's like, it is, it's better to obey than it is to sacrifice. Now, of course, then growing up, I thought that meant if I don't obey mom and dad, they're going to spank me because that was just, and actually that pro, there probably was a connection there. <laughs> but, but isn't that interesting? That is the heart of God. So if you don't want relational closeness, you try to fill that void with all these things that God doesn't want. Does that make sense? If my default is to choose something other than love, can we recognize it as trying to fill a void of things that God is not really interested in? I just want broken spirit, contrite heart, obedience, and all that is just multiple metaphors. It's ways of saying, I want, I want to know you and to love you and be loved by you. I want relational intimacy. Stop trying to replace intimacy with stuff. And so that's his ideal. That's what I actually want. But then, so, but then what does he do? It's so frustrating, Dan. All right, I'll receive your offerings, though. Don't want them, don't eat them, don't like them, but I'll receive them. They're sweet-smelling incense to me. I mean, are they? You know? I don't think he's lying, but he's just, you guys are hung up on this, but there's a better way. And I think part of it, and, and to close this loop back and we're done, I think what it is is because when we see God do something, even if it's something that is purely done from his heart, we misinterpret it based on our own, our own images, right? So Adam and Eve, they witnessed the first sacrifice, right? And it was provided for them. That was the key thing they missed. God didn't ask them for a sacrifice. He provided a sacrifice. And so when they saw that, I believe that in their minds something clicked. Well, he must really enjoy sacrifice because you just turn a few pages and Abraham comes from a land saturated in idol worship and sacri it's, 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 uh, animal sacrifice, human sacrifice, it's all there. It didn't take long. But we missed the main point. God doesn't want sacrifice, but he will provide it. So in, in this equation, guys, listen, your relationship with God, there's only one part of that equation that's going to give sacrifice, and it's him. It's not you. It's him. We see that again when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. Whoa, 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 don't, don't do that. I'm not, I don't, he's literally the fulfillment of my promise to you. Why would I take Isaac? And then what does God do? He provides himself a sacrifice, the ram caught in the, in the thorn bush. And then if you need any other help with this, Jesus. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And now let's take the sonship language out for a second because they are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. For God so loved the world, he gave himself. He gave himself. If there's any sacrifice on the table in your life, it's God sacrificing for you. It's not God demanding sacrifice from you. And in my mind, that is such an amazingly liberating thing. Really. And so what's my role? I want to figure out how to tap into that prophetic utterance of David. Lord, you don't delight in those kind of sacrifices and offerings, so this is what I'm going to bring to you, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Just teach me how to be obedient, that relational connectedness. I want to pray for you. Lord, I just thank you for that relational connectedness. We, listen, if right now, if those watching, listening, those here in the sanctuary, if you feel like you're not connected, I want to encourage you. There's, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as being disconnected from the Father. I mean, you can believe you are. You can give in to the illusion that that's true. But he is in all things and through all things. He is all in all. You can't run from him. Trying to be disconnected from God is trying to be someone else other than you. And it doesn't work. He is the air that we breathe, the song that we sing, the name Yahweh is is God, it's the name of God breathed. He participates in the breath that allows you to call his name. And so, Lord, when we realize just how connected we are, then give us the grace to pursue that relational intimacy that we are created for. You know, I, growing up in, in church, growing up in ministry, I've heard all these things about what we're created for. Maybe you could add some to the list, but, you know, I, I was created to praise. And I get it. That's great. I was born to worship. I was born to serve. I, I, that's probably the lowest there on the totem pole. Um, Megan and I didn't have any, any of our kids because we thought they'd be our servants. But I get it. But now, what if we just got the simplicity of I was born, I was born because of God's love. His love needed an object. And so he, here I am. He's, and if that's true of me, it's true of everyone. And then, so then now my, my great work externally is how to love others as God has loved me. That's actually what Jesus said is the great command. Love others as you have been loved by God. But, but I don't know how to love others if I don't have a revelation of his love for me. And I promise you, it is not a life wasted if you spend your entire life exploring that love. Lord, let it never become an old message. Let it always remain fresh in our hearts and minds. It is true of love that it conquers all. And I want to be part of that kind of victory. It's a victory that at surface level, it looks like it wins by losing. It looks like it wins by being taken advantage of. But that's okay. Because I know if that's the case, I'm following footsteps that are greater than mine that have already paved such a way. The cross is foolishness to the world. 
it is foolishness to the world, but it is the wisdom of God revealed. Wow, isn't that awesome? So I just bless each one here. I know they're already blessed. I just, just want to bless them a little more on my own. Lord, for those watching and listening, Lord, touch their hearts in a fresh way. Lord, let us stop offering to the world an image of God that looks like us. And let us have the courage to show them the God who looks like Jesus. I, know, I mean, that's the point, right? Again, growing up, Jesus is the pattern. Jesus is the pattern. But we have to see him as he is. Only in that way can we be like him. You have to see him as he is. Lord, I just thank you for all these things now. Decree them by faith in and through the precious, mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us again. Like and share this on Facebook so that others can be blessed. Turn on your notifications on YouTube, and we'd love to see you at one of our corporate gatherings here at 1.30 at the Maravan Center in Greenville, South Carolina. God bless you. Have an amazing week. We'll see you next time.